This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Rolf Gates. Rolf is a leading voice of modern yoga philosophy and practice. He's the co-founder of the Yoga, Meditation, and Recovery Conference, a teacher at Spirit Rock Insight Meditation Center, and he's also on the advisory board for the Yoga Service Council and the Veterans Yoga Project. A former addictions counselor, and U.S. Army Airborne Ranger, who has practiced meditation for over 25 years, Rolf brings his eclectic background to his practice and his teachings. What sounds true, Rolf has released a new audio program called Meditations from the Mat, Practices for Living from the Heart, where he teaches about the fundamental skills of being from the mat and into the world. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Rolf and I spoke about how just one caring person can increase our resiliency and the many gifts that can come from spiritual friendship. We also talked about how Rolf learned to soothe himself and care and calm himself through the practice of yoga and through managing contracted states in the body. And how from this, he learned that if the body lets go, the mind will also let go. We also talked about the surprising and life-altering power of prayer and grace. And how this has led Rolf to a commitment to living in gratitude and listening to the whispers of the heart. Here's my conversation with Rolf Gates. Rolf, I wanted to begin by talking a little bit about you. You have such an interesting background to me and came to spiritual practice through a circuitous route, if you will. What I learned is that you came to spiritual practice through your recovery from addiction. And if we could begin talking about that, what was going on in your life and how you first discovered yoga, and meditation? Well, um, uh, let me see. I, I got sober at 26 years old. So on a physical level, I was quite healthy. I was in the military and serving overseas. And so I had physical health. Um, but kind of mentally and emotionally, I was uh, kind of like an end stage addiction. So I had extreme, um, uh, mental and emotional, uh, you know, kind of malaise. And so emotionally that meant that, um, I was really, life was very, very difficult. And it was just kind of like making it through the day kind of thing. And at kind of worst case scenario. And then mentally I was starting to have some deficits. You know, I used, uh, drugs and alcohol for 
12 years of their formative years, so like 14 to 26. So I was starting to have things like aphasia where I, I couldn't forget, I couldn't remember if I put keys down. I know everyone has this problem, but it's, it, it's really bad. Like if you, I couldn't forget what I had done in the room. If I went from one room to the next, I'd forget what was in, you know, what I had done in the past room. I was starting to have, you know, some, some significant mental uh, difficulties. And so uh, when I, I actually, the kind of the toll of that juxtaposed with like an overseas military assignment, I sought help right? and I went to counselors and was just, and sought help for my addiction. Um, and so I think from the beginning, it was not an issue of kind of getting enough sleep or eating properly. It was about dealing with kind of the mental and emotional um, turmoil that a human being can create in her own life. You know, and 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 then how do you treat the the turmoil of being human? And so I went to counseling for a little while, and you know, it just wasn't really going to do much. But the the counselor recommended I go to a twelve step meeting with this person uh, that he knew, and and that was the kind of the beginning. This guy picked me up at my apartment and took me to a twelve step meeting in Frankfurt, Germany, and right off the bat, the connection with another human being kind of on that basis of like, I'm here to help you with this problem that you're having, which isn't in form. It's a problem of mental and emotional uh, suffering, you know, mental and emotional anguish that right off the bat was a, a game changer. I'd had never, no one had ever shown up in my life before to help me with that. Like I'd been kicked out of several schools in high school. Uh, I went to four schools ultimately um, all due to drugs and alcohol and no one ever like was like, wow, you seem to be having trouble with, with living, you know? Um, and so kind of from the start, like a 12 step program is a spiritual community dedicated to kind of dealing with, um, the phenomena of craving. And so, you know, like whatever, 27 years later, I'm a big time, you know, Buddhist meditation person and I, and the four noble truths are huge in my life. But, um, uh, I'd started with just entering this spiritual community, um, uh, you know, in, like I was a, it was a church basement in Frankfurt where, you know, 20 people um, were recovering from their addictions through kind of spiritual practice. And so for me at 26, I didn't have any real filters. I didn't, I didn't think of a you 12-step know, program as being, you know, explicitly spiritual. And I didn't think of that as being, well, well, that's an interesting choice. I have this problem instead of dealing with it with like medicine or some sort of kind of kind of Western professional approach. I'm just going to go to a gathering of individuals and talk about our stuff and pray. You know? And I, I just didn't have an opinion about it. But, you know, that summer I kind of went, I, I began um, to, uh, I began what I think of as spiritual principle, spiritual practice in earnest, meaning you know, learning and applying spiritual principles from people who have more experience than I do. Um, and then doing that learning process in the context of a spiritual community that is kind of living like in adherence to spiritual principles. So this, so 12 step programs have kind of the 12 principles of practice, but they also have the, the, the 12 traditions. And so they have their kind of, um, there's a spiritual context uh, and spiritual kind of, um, uh, what's the word for it, precepts that communities operate under. So I was able to go into a safe space to do spiritual work with uh, other, you know, so I had, I had, you know, the three jewels. I had 
essentially the hope of the Buddha nature, you know, the hope of sobriety. I had the, the teachings and I had the Sangha um, right off the bat. Um, and I was all in, you know, I, I, I think the being an athlete and being in the military had taught me to enjoy being a part of a team and being a part of a organization, a play, a group of people who had a purpose, you know, like, we have a purpose, we're a football team, you know, and, and a 12 step program had this powerful sense of purpose, which was putting days together of sobriety. And I just, I just loved it from the start. So that's how I got started. One of the things that really touches me about your story is how it was one person, one counselor, and how you felt that person take a real interest in you for the first time. Someone really cared about you and your path and what was happening inside, on the inside for you, and how that made such a difference. That touches me. I mean, it shows me the importance and potential that one person can have in another person's life. Oh, absolutely. uh, My wife um, uh, went to Harvard School of Education and you know, it was an, it's interesting because I, I didn't realize I was paying attention while she went through it, but um, um, I picked up a few things from her process. And one of them is a resiliency study, which says that it, it just takes one person to show an interest in someone for there to be kind of like a, it's, it's the second indicator. There's, there's a, there, they had a couple things that, you know, when they looked at what, you know, who becomes resilient, you know, who kind of rises out of the muck and the mire. Sadly, the first indicator is appearance. The people tend to treat people better depending on their appearance. And so how you're treated is going to be, you know, determined um, to some extent by how you look. The second uh, indicator of what resilience, and this is according to the, you know, Harvard, I don't have any proof of this, but the second um, indicator is did someone in your life, doesn't have to be a parent, but did someone in your life, um, think you were see past the superficial and see some see potential in you, you know? Um, and it was more than one person for me. I had a high school wrestling coach who was that person. And I had a, a math teacher at one point. So I've, I had certain people, but absolutely one of the takeaways for me is that we can make a difference in each other's lives, you know, like kindness and compassion um, go a long way. Now, you mentioned, Rolf, that when you went to this 12-step group, that they were looking at craving and how craving runs our life. And you drew a parallel to the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism. And I'm not sure that all of our listeners were tracking with you on that. So talk to me about your understanding of craving and how that was both addressed through 12-step work and through your Buddhist studies? Well, it's in, um, actually, it's in the Yoga Sutras as well. Um, uh, you know, the, um, in the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, so that's the kind of the, the first text. And, and in many respects, it's, uh, there's really two texts in the 12-step world that I'm familiar with and that I, I feel like they kind of inform all the rest. Of, there's some ridiculous number now of 12-step programs, I think like over 250 12-step programs for different types of issues. But there's two primary texts, and the first one was written in the 30s, um, and it's called The Big Book. And in The Big Book, they talk about the phenomena of craving and that the spiritual practice of someone in a 12-step program is meant to address 
the the phenomena of craving. Um, and you know, and so that's just explicit. That that's where that phrase comes from. The phrase phenomena of craving is right out of the big book. And then you know, many years later, I'm I'm kind of taking Buddhist studies and I'm looking at the first noble truth and the second noble truth. And, you know, there is suffering, first noble truth and suffering is caused by, and then there's a, a number of uh, interesting interpretations of what the cause is. And so one for one term is clinging, right? And then another term is tana or thirst. Uh, another term is attachment. And then another term is craving and craving is used. And at least where I study it, Spirit rock craving is used kind of as much as any other term, you know. Uh, but there's this, you know, an, an attachment to me is often um, um, kind of attachment is the intellectual, and then craving is the felt, you know. Because of the intellectual attachment, there's this embodied craving for an outcome, you know, uh, or to avoid an outcome. Um, but it was interesting to me that, I mean, I, it took me many years. I, I was aware on a first-hand basis of what the phenomenon of craving was as an addict. You know, it, it, it completely and utterly called the shots for me when I was in active addiction. And I was fully aware that it was the phenomena that I needed to either like escape or die from, you know, and that that's what, that's what spiritual practice was for me in the summer of 1990 was that was the question, you know, will I be able to find a way out of this condition, you know, of a, of, of a highly practiced attachment to, you know, getting wasted, basically. Um, will I be able to escape that condition or not? And the way I'm going to do that is literally through the practices that were being kind of shared with me. In 12, and um, among the practices was Sangha. So, like, uh, probably one of the most powerful antidotes to the phenomenon of craving is company, you know, spending time with others, you know, spiritual friendship, which is another Buddhist concept. You know, the Buddha was asked about, you know, what's kind of the most important, you know, this is one of those stories that we have no proof of, but a story that I'm told is that the Buddha was asked, you know, what's the most component to the practice? And he said, spiritual friendship. And without question, what you were alluding to with that gentleman was that I was in the space of spiritual friendship. Like when I, I have this image of being in his car, you know, he picked me up in Friedberg, Germany, and we went down the Audubon. It's about a you know 25-minute drive to Frankfurt from there. And being in his car as he's telling me about you know his his life, he 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 went to Vietnam at 17 and spent the next four years in Vietnam um, as a soldier, and then went on to be a special forces guy. And he was at the end of his career, kind of um, they had put him out the pasture, so he was a combat medic whose job had was now just taking the blood pressure of the division commander of this general kind of like the CEO of our unit. Um, and it literally was his whole job. Like he basically was the personal physician to our division commander because he'd been such a storied soldier that they were letting him just have an easy job at the end of his career. And he was like filling me in on this. And I was just sitting there in the comfort and ease of his welcome. Like I was welcome in his car, you know, and his, I was welcome to his time you know, I was welcome to his attention and I was welcome to whatever kind of um, benefits that his community could offer me and that he was going to make that available to me. And there's this kind of spiritual friendship that um, to me is if we're talking about, you know, how do people leave the cave of craving, you know, a big step out of it um, is into spiritual friendship, 
you know, and that's what happened. I kind of like left the door of my addict's cave and stepped into this guy's car and into friendship. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. I think that, yeah, there's so much that we can do for one another just, but with just through, you know, kindness and compassion. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a bit more about craving as a driver in our experience, because when I think when people think of addiction, you know, it's extreme. You know, I have right. to, I have to have that cigarette or whatever it might be. I have to have it. I have to have it. I have to have it. How can each of us identify where we're being moved in that kind of automatic pilot craving type way in more subtle parts of our life, in more subtle ways? How is craving really running our life? Well, I think, um, and that's why, uh, you know, a mindfulness practice can kind of roll out a couple different ways, you know. So I've been a part of three different mindfulness practices, and I'll kind of describe the effect they have in terms of like how we become aware of the more subtle um, kind of aspects of craving in our lives and can start to see how, you know, and then there's an interesting phenomenon that right behind craving comes delusion. So I'll kind of talk you through that uh, quickly, I hope. Um, So in a 12-step program, you examine what happens is you sit down. Nothing is asked of you. You just sit down and you observe. And then people share honestly about their experience of craving and how craving ran their lives. And so it's it's very similar. If you think about a meditator, a meditator is sitting still and doing nothing. And she's watching her mind. And that doesn't take immediately. But, you know, once she's been doing it for a while, she can literally watch the phenomena of craving and how it's running her life. She can see how her thoughts move and how once she gets attached, things get revved up. And so a meditator is sitting and watching the phenomena of craving. But what happens in a 12-step program is you take someone, you know, who's like, this person is homeless, heroin addicted, and, you know, they're not in a position to go on a meditation retreat, but they can sit in the back of a room and listen to people talk about how craving affects them in their personal life, in their financial life, in their romantic life, in their, you know, in their addiction life, right? They can talk about, and they can listen to, wow, so that, that person, the phrase is identified, don't compare. And so you're sitting in the back of the room and you're identifying, you're looking for points of identification, like, oh, I, I'm like that too. And, and so the way that people share in a, a 12-step program is you kind of, you explain what it's, what it was like, you know, what happened to change it and what it's like now. And so you, you listen to both the problem and the solution over and over again. So in, a, in an hour meeting, you can hear 20 people talk about identify the problem and identify the solution and how it's just playing out in their everyday life. And so it's a, it's a incredible education, right? And so that would be a mindfulness practice, 12 step style. You know, from there I went to my yoga mat and you kind of hear kind of, you know, as much as I'm a yoga teacher, so as much as I'd like to think that my, my cueing is extraordinarily creative, um, it's extremely repetitive, actually, right? You do the same poses day after day. You're being cued the breath day after day. There's not a lot of variance, actually. And so you have a chance to watch how you habitually react to things and kind of what's onward leading and what's problematic, you know? Um, and in, on a yoga mat, you find not so much craving, but attachment. 
you know, wanting the pose you had yesterday, wanting the practice you had yesterday, wanting the teacher you had yesterday, not wanting the experience you're having right now. And, and you start to see in a different way, you're observing how attachment makes your intention kind of impossible. You can't kind of go to yoga <laughs> and have the class that you wanted and be attached at the same time. And so, you know, there, it's, a, it's a very, very different process. It's really about having, you know, several years of frustration. Like, why, am I, why do I come to class and one day it works and one day it doesn't? And eventually you realize it's not really the teacher or the poses. It's the, it's the phenomena of craving, the phenomena of attachment that where it's you either can learn to let things go and be one with what is or not, you know, and that's kind of got to be the determinant for your yoga practice. But I think the, I think the real, the real, um, four formats for me have been both the, the 12 step program was, was obviously brilliant, right? You have people from all walks of life speaking honestly about their experience. And so you have this kind of, you know, plethora of opportunities to hear your own story, you know, and you hear your story over and over again. Um, and then the thing about, um, Medit- yeah, what yoga is, what did for me was uh, teach me how to calm down. Like, so sitting in the back of the room, you know, I was kind of like a, kind of a roadmap of, you know, what happens when someone has P- untreated PTSD, you know? Um, and so I was medicating, P- I had been medicating PTSD with alcohol and then I went to like sugar and sober. I was like sugar, caffeine, conflict, obsession. You know, I, I, I had no way to kind of self-soothe. And going into a yoga mat, I learned how to relax and breathe and that, you know, and to be in my body in a way that was, you know, kind of skillful, like to do a yoga pose, you have to, you have to kind of know where to be soft and know where to be strong and know how you have to learn an economy of effort and efficiency. And you develop kind of, you change your, your kind of like your set point of like, what is, you know, what is kind of the physical, uh, um, status that you want to be resting in, you know? And so think one of the problems with PTSD is to become like my blood pressure when I was 28 years old was 140 over 90. And at 50, it's 120 over 74. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, like at 28, I was accustomed to this incredibly stressed out physical mental status. And so I didn't know, it's like you literally don't know what you don't know. I didn't know how you'd have to take my blood pressure to tell me, dude, you're kind of wrapped, you're kind of wound up. And the years on a yoga mat taught me to recognize not so much in met the, you know, when I'm thinking, when I think about um, attachment or craving, I'm kind of thinking about a mental fixation. Whereas what you're encountering on a yoga mat is the physical consequences. You move into kind of a mental fixation, your body becomes rigid, your breathing becomes shallow. And the repetitive nature of the cueing in yoga gets you into that reaction. And you're dealing at the level of the body and the breath, not the mental fixation, but the physical reaction and how to, how to manage the physical reaction to craving um, directly. And what's funny is that with yoga, you learn that if, you, if the body lets go, the mind lets go. And that takes a long time. It's not like you learned that on day one. But the, but the mechanics of the success people experience in yoga is that they're learning to let go with their body. Um, and as they learn to let go with their body, they're learning to let go with their mind. 
And you can see how that, for me, that process was a bridge to meditation. So I was like halfway there. When I sat down um, on my first retreat, I could manage, you know, nine days in silence, you know, doing sitting and walking meditation all day because I'd done whatever it was, 10, 15 years of yoga. And so I learned how to, now, of course, the meditation, that's stepping it up a lot. To go from 90-minute yoga classes to nine-day meditation retreats is a big step. But I had learned how to manage um, contracted states in my body. I'd learned how to manage my body when I was tired or when I was excited or when I was angry. I'd learned how to calm myself down. I learned how to settle myself. And I learned how to be my own best friend. The other thing that happens on a yoga mat when you're in an A meeting, your attention is on the people around you and you kind of befriend your community. On a mat or a cushion, you're befriending yourself, you know? And so I started to learn that, um, you know, on my mat and I kind of completed that education on in silence on a meditation retreat. And so um, just to kind of put a bow on that, um, all of these practices, whether it's a 12-step practice, a, a yoga practice or meditation practices, you're, you're, you're developing um, a connection to the subtle aspects of your experience. You're not having to wait for a divorce or a bankruptcy before you notice that something is wrong. You know, you start to notice the tone of your voice is changing in a conversation or the, your breath is getting contracted or, or just your thinking is moved from appreciation to, to judgment. You know, you, you start to see yourself in a 12-step program, you can kind of recognize yourself and others. You, you can recognize your patterns. And then on a yoga mat or a meditation cushion, you're recognizing your patterns directly. And you're getting a chance to see what the consequences are. You know, this is the cause. What is the effect? Is that what you meant by how underlying our addictive patterns is delusion? Delusion underneath we're oh, seeing? Oh, yeah. So, um <laughs> I have this guy um, in my life who is the first, um, the first Buddhist monk of Uganda, and I can't pronounce his last name. It's got about, you know, um, seven vowels in it. Uh, but his, his, he's known as, in, in, you know, in our community as Bonte, which just means friend. And um, he now has he has a he has a. Um, uh, a community that he's leading in Uganda and he has two other monks. So there's three of them now and he has quite a story, but um, I worked with him for the first time last summer and we'd have our kind of morning, our breakfasts together. And he, he kind of explained to me how um, there's the three basic uh, unskillful mind states, like the primary <laughs> colors of suffering are greed, hatred, and delusion, Right. But greed or hatred have to be present first, then delusion happens. So you're either in wanting or not wanting. And if you observe, you can be in not wanting or wanting for about two or three seconds before delusion happens. And delusion is thinking that which will make you unhappy has the power to make you happy, right? So you're walking into Starbucks to get your you know, healthy beverage that you've, your, your spiritual disciplines have, like, you know, outlined for you. So I will now have a green tea with almond milk, you know, and, um, and you're walking in determined to kind of adhere to your vows, and you cruise past the glass counter, and there's, like, this muffin, you know, which is nowhere in your spiritual commitments is a blueberry muffin, right? Um, 
and and you but you have this kind of um habitual liking of blueberry muffins and so you're triggered into wanting and if you don't have a practice that allows you to kind of deal with the kind of the acorn, you end up with an oak tree, you know? And so the acorn's just this kind of subtle whiff of like, gee, I'd like a blueberry muffin maybe. And if you hold that for about two seconds, what Bonte taught me was um, delusion starts to happen, which is like, that's the explanation machine. You know, it's really good for me to have this blueberry muffin because, you know, I just, it's just, it's just time. It's been too long I actually didn't have a good breakfast. There's some healthy carbs here. There's blueberries. Blueberries are healthy. Delusion is that part of us um, which convinces us that that's what will make us unhappy has the power to make us happy. And it only arises in the presence of wanting or not wanting. You know? And so um, another factor here is developing enough awareness that you can kind of deal with the oak trees, I'm sorry, the acorns as they arise, you know, those faint um, irritations. The person in front of you is driving a little too slow. And if you, if for me, if I, if I kind of just stay in my irritation for almost two blinks of an eye, I will start to kind of rev up into a full-blown unskillful mind state about this person who's wrecking my world, you know? And so I need to like be very present feel that faint whiff of, of, um, of irritation and start to get back into my body, into my breath and into my intention. Or I'm going to go into delusion where I'm like, you know what I need to do right now? I need to pass this guy. I need to educate him. As I pass him, I should probably honk him and glare. So he will know that he's ruining the world driving 37 miles an hour. He needs to know this and I'm here to help him with that, you know, and that's going to make me happy. And in the, odd event that I would actually do that, it will not make me happy. You know, I'll pass the guy and then I'll have like guilt and shame. You know? um, but delusion, delusion comes um, after. First, there's the wanting or the not wanting. There's this subtle craving. And then there's this part of us which says, you should probably just go ahead and get what you want. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll make you happy. Good. That's very clarifying. Thanks, Rolf. Now, here's one of the things you said that I thought was very interesting, that in your yoga practice, you learned how to manage contracted states in the body. And that as a result, when you went on a long meditation retreat, you'd already had this great training from yoga that made meditation more accessible to you. So tell me about learning to manage contracted states in the body. I think many people have experience of going to a yoga class and they're fighting against their contractions. How do well, we do something yeah, different? I think, um, I'm, you know, if you think about what's happening, I, I think I'll, I'll just jump in. The image I have is, okay, me literally at this first retreat. So I'm in Barrie, Massachusetts. And it's in March, you know. And the, as far as I can tell, these guys are just ring the bell it's 45 minutes of sitting and they ring the bell and it's 45 minutes of walking and it's virtually zero instruction. Um, it's like I missed a memo or something. <laughs> and this is my first experience of being on retreat and left to my own devices. I was forced to look at, well, what are my devices? You know, what have I learned that I can, that I can, you know, rely upon uh, going through what is kind of what felt to be leaping into the deep end of Buddhist meditation. And what I had learned was how to 
relax and to breathe. Like when you're in a yoga, when you're in a yoga practice, like what I, I found, I, I, you know, I go to, I went to yoga having been an athlete and there's all this striving and proving. And so striving and proving are these kind of contracted states of wanting that we want, that we kind of rev up into. And we're kind of conditioned. If you if you do sports in the United States, it's definitely about winning and losing and you, and proving. And so, you know, I'd hit my yoga mat and I'd be, okay, here I go. I'm going to win. I'm going to win yoga. (laughs) And it's becoming aware of like, wow, your intention right here is to win or to prove or to get. And it's, it's how do I back off of that and breathe and relax and receive? It's kind of moving from a place of getting to a place of receiving. And, th- and this is definitely being taught explicitly in, in you know, the yoga classes I went to. I went to Kripalo back in the day, and there's people like Stephen Cope, very intelligent yoga teachers, and they were teaching us how to connect and to receive, you know, how to connect to your own felt experience and then how to receive the fullness of it. And we can't really be in striving and proving without um, and, and connecting and receiving at the same time. And so there's this process of recognizing, like, what, what's your intention here? How are you meeting this moment? And then, you know, coming into kind of a skillful intention, but then also kind of the mechanics of a skill. So if I want to receive the taste of soup, I have to stop. My breathing has to slow down. My mind has to get clear. I have to place my attention carefully on my tongue. Like there's some mechanics here of receiving a taste of soup or or receiving the experience of an in-breath or receiving the experience of an out-breath. And I was being taught all of this, basically replacing habituated conditioning, condition striving and proving with an intentional state of connection and receiving. And that had gone for years. Like every single time, it didn't matter what pose I was in, the question was kind of like, what's your intention? You know, are you, is your intention here to prove something or is it to connect to something? Okay. If your intention is to connect, how do you receive the experience you want to connect to? What's, what do you have to do how do you participate in this moment in a way that allows you to feel the breeze on your skin or feel the breath moving through your chest or feel the way that how your feet meet the floor is affecting the way your hips are? You know, how do you receive this without, uh, uh, not from a place of judgment, but really from a place of appreciation and connection? And so that training had been going on forever. I feel like I'd had at least a decade of that kind of training um, just like the way I was describing it. Um, and I, I'd been a student of that. Like it basically, how do you connect and receive a moment? You know, how you connect to a moment, how you receive the sweetness of it. And instead of calling instead of doing it, you know, uh, on a walk in the forest, you're doing it in a series of poses. Um, but then the implication is you can do it on the walks of the forest. So when I went to meditate, I, I found myself immediately trying to strive and prove and win meditation and I'm like, wow, I know, I've, been to, I've been to this party before. I want to strive, prove, and win. Okay, I'm going to connect and receive. I'm going to move from striving and proving to connecting and receiving. And I'm going to do so with the intention to learn and to understand, you know, um, and to um, grow in wisdom and compassion. And that had been taught to me in yoga. There's just a whole other deal happening when you go from a, two-minute yoga pose to a 45-minute meditation pose. 
And so there's a whole other curriculum available, but you can access that curriculum with the training you get on a, in a good yoga class. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you said this other key sentence that I really love, if the body lets go, the mind lets go. And one of the things, Rolf, that I love about your work is that you help people translate and transfer the skills that they learn in yoga and meditation on the cushion and on the mat into their life. And I'm curious if you can share more how you work with the body letting go in the midst of our everyday life so that the mind will let go when difficult things happen. You gave the example of, you know, being in the car, but there are all kinds of ways that we notice our body is clenching up for various reasons in a meeting, interpersonal experiences, etc. How do you help the body let go so the mind will let go? Well, a lot of it's just um, programming the central nervous system. I mean, if you think about PTSD, which is was kind of my presenting issue. I mean, I, for a long time, I was like, I'm, I was an addict. And, that, and, you know, today I see myself as someone who was traumatized and kind of was medicating um, uh, with substances. And then when the substances left, I still had to deal with the trauma. And that's been my kind of yoga and meditation story. Um, and so for me, there's been what I'm doing in yoga and meditation is reprogramming my central nervous system to a new set point. You know, I had kind of a, a set point of hypervigilance. Um, I, I would say that there was a couple things that I needed to, to survive in my PTSD chapter. One was hypervigilance, really knowing what was going on around me, um, being able to, you know, my parents were um, definitely uh, potentially dangerous. And so I had to kind of keep a, keep an eye on them um, and then, you know, my, my siblings were in danger, and so I had to kind of keep an eye on them, you know. And then when we left the house, it was a very kind of, it was a violent world I lived in, so I needed to keep an eye on everybody else, you know. And, um, and so there was this kind of hypervigilant thing happening. Um, but then um, um, the way that I responded to the threats was to move into a place of, you know, violence. Like, I will definitely, if you if you threaten me, I'm going to go code, code red here. Um, and so I had to have like this. Um, so not only was I hypervigilant, but I had this kind of um, willingness and kind of, I was prepared to do violence at a drop of a hat. And I actually lived in a, an entire community of people. Uh, you know, I was in um, Boston <laughs> during the busing and I had an entire, the entire like city was living that way. It wasn't like just a family, you know, dysfunction thing. I lived in a city that was predisposed to violence at a drop of a hat. And so if you wanted to get by, you need to have this kind of revved up state. 
And sobriety, as I was understanding it, was about a life of kind of devotion and gratitude and service, right? And so, like, there was nothing in the, like, bylaws of sobriety that had to do with, like, overwhelming violence at a drop of a hat, right? And mm-hmm. so a life of devotion, gratitude, and service really wasn't going to be served by being, like, hypervigilant and ready to do combat. Um, and, you know, literally pre- mentally preparing for combat. And, um, and so I had to retrain what my central nervous system was there to do. And so that's, to me, that's like, so to understand how we can you know, roll through our day and notice that subtle tension arising, stop, relax, breathe, you know? And for me, I literally, I I just did it a second ago. I let go physically and I wait for that physical uh, release to become a mental stillness. And it's a little bit like you hear the sound of a bell rings and there's this, there's this, the onset of the sound. And then there's this, peaking of the sound and then there's this vanishing and there's this arc of a sound if you listen to a bell and to me it's very similar when you relax the body that's the striking of the bell and you can watch that stillness go through from the from the physical to the breath from the physical body to the breath you know to the mind to the emotional body you can kind of watch the stillness come in this is a sensitivity that you develop over time and so for me, it was first, there was this, you know, the you know, 12-step programs that kind of taught me to be honest with myself. And I, to be honest with myself, I was like highly agitated. <laughs> and so going to yoga classes in these like sweet smelling rooms with these gentle flowing music and gentle words was like ideal. I'm like, this is a good place for an agitated person to be. And so I would just like check into Kripalu, which is this yoga center in the Berkshires for a week just to let them calm me down. And I didn't know I was going to be learning any skills. I just thought I should be there and I should be in a calm place, you know, and then listening to what they were saying and applying what the teachings, I learned that I could calm myself down. And so there's this process of learning how to calm yourself down. And as you learn to calm yourself down, that becomes what your body is acclimated to. And then you can notice, wait, there's a dissonant energy here. I'm not actually comfortable with a lot of judgment or a lot of um, uh, a lot of striving or a lot of proving. There's like energies and state. There's mind states and physical states that you're no longer comfortable with. And when they arise, they become kind of um, uh, red flags. Like, wow, this is a state of consciousness. This is a state of, of physical being that is inconsistent with how I want to be in this moment. And Mm -hmm. I've learned how to kind of talk myself off the ledge and how to come back into my breath and back in my body. And so I think that if you, if you look at the teachings of an ordinary yoga class and an ordinary meditation class and you follow them logically, you look at the arc, what's happening is a person is first showing up and getting kind of settled and calmed and they learn how to settle and calm themselves and then eventually they realize that when they get unsettled, they can settle themselves. And actually, what's interesting is that, you know, wisdom and compassion kind of live in a settled place. Like we are going to put our best foot forward when we're settled and connected. And 
yoga and meditation deliver nothing if not the state of settled connectedness. <laughs> and so, yeah, that becomes, you know, and so today I kind of just, that's my aspiration. You know, mm-hmm. I live in Santa Cruz. It's a beautiful town. There's trees, there's sunlight and everything. And I have these children and a dog and a wife and friends, and I want to be settled and connected with them. Mm-hmm. And I've learned how to be settled and connected with them. And so I spend a little time on my mat and my cushion, but then I spend the rest of the day, you know, uh, with the intention to be settled and connected because it's going to be a great way to you know, treat myself. But it's also when I'm settled and connected, I can be the friend or the husband or the father that I want to be. What does it feel like inside, if you can describe it in real feeling, somatic language, when something happens and you feel triggered? And you notice it and you go, yep, I'm triggered. Um, right off the bat, my, my body tightens up. It's kind of like, <gasps> you know, that feeling of like, if I, you know, um, most of us belong on one side of a political divide these days. And if the wrong bumper sticker, you're driving down the car and the wrong bumper sticker drives by, the one that doesn't, that, that mocks your political beliefs, that feeling in your body of like, <clears throat> you know, or the wrong topic comes up. It's just that kind of, um, that gripping, uh, that comes, uh, that kind of internal gripping would be how I would describe it. It's like you, what's going to happen next. I physically grip, I physically contract that my mind contracts, you know, and it may be, it's probably the other way around. It's probably the, the mind is moving so quickly that I don't notice the contracting of my mind, but I can feel it in my body and my breath. The moment it happens. And what about for that person who says, okay, I know what you're talking about, but, you know, I have a very busy life. There's a lot that's being demanded of me. I notice that that's happening, but I don't have the time to go do a 15-minute practice. I'm, you know, I'm in the middle of something. Well, it happens quickly and it can dissipate quickly. That's one of the things that, you know, that's the, that's the good news around impermanence is that um, as bad as a, a mind state can be in terms of a contracted state of like anger or desire, you know, or delusion. Um, it takes, if you watch, it only takes a few seconds for us to get revved up. And it really only takes a few seconds for us to get settled and connected again. And so it's not like a, it's not a thing that, um, that's going to take 15 minutes. You can, you can get triggered in a breath or two and you can get untriggered in a breath or two. You know, depending, I mean, occasionally there's extreme circumstances where you're just going to, something happens. I, I lost my uncle um, 10 days ago, and that's not something that I'm going to, you know, breathe out of in a day, a breath or two. It's, it's going to have a, a lingering effect, you know. But ordinary triggers, even like stuff, even business stuff, you know, you know she's up, she's down, like a business, the, hey, good news, hey, bad news. Even that stuff, re- reacting to good news or reacting to bad news when it's something that's not like life and death, when it's just business stuff or it's just plans going awry, um, you can breathe your way out of that reactivity in a in fair, like really in a breath or two, once you've been training or you just don't have to become, you don't have to live according to the ups and downs, the, the duality, you don't, your emote, your inner life doesn't have to track your outer life. You know, your inner life can, can be somewhat independent of it. Um, there was another piece here. Uh, oh, and then there's the intention, the why of it. So it's nice if what I'm teaching or what I'm practicing nets out to kind of an easeful way of life. But the purpose of this easeful way of life is that I carry responsibilities. 
I think as an adult, the longer you live, the more impact you're having on other people's lives. And so I want my behavior to be, you know, um, in support of the highest good of my children or my wife or my friends or my students or my colleagues. I want my behavior to be skillful. And there's a direct correlation between what, how we're being in our body and how we're being in our mind. And there's a direct correlation between our mind states and our behavior, our behavior and our consequences. And so in some ways, the body and the breath are like this canary in a coal mine, letting us know if we're heading down the path to freedom or the path to suffering. And if we're in kind of an easeful, connected place, we're going to be in a, a wise and compassionate place. If we're in a contracted state, we're probably going to just be unskillful. I think that's like a, the best term for it. Like we're probably going to make decisions that are not um, taking into account everything that we know to be true. Now, a couple of times, Rolf, you've talked about the importance of intention. And I know your latest book is also Meditations on Intention and Being. And I'm curious, do you have an intention that's, this is my intention for my life, my intention statement? Or is it different in different times? Like, for this practice, my intention is this. You know, I, um, I think that I, I essentially, um, there's this intention that is at the kind of heart of 12-step programs that I... Um, that I kind of imbibed at an early age. And it's so, and it's my overarching kind of intention. There's this, when you kind of boil down the 12 step program belief around sobriety, um, someone who is sober is sober by the grace of God. You know, this is their kind of belief. And, and, and so the phrase is that sobriety is a free gift. It's, it's an unmerited gift. It's not like you, are sober because you were special. It's literally the nature of things that, you know, it's a nature of grace, that grace has entered your life and gave you sobriety. Um, and whether that sounds like a logical statement or not, um, that was my experience, that I was, the, I was the beneficiary of a free gift and I was given a second chance at life. And I was in a community of people who believe the same thing. And so I would see that mirrored, not just that they would say that, but I could see that to be true in their lives, that these were people who were kind of like, you know, getting, coming out of their sick beds and getting on with life, you know? Um, and it was remarkable. And from that position, basically the intention of a sober person, as I understood it, was, to, was gratitude was to live a life based on gratitude. I think so if I were to, you know, to boil my intention for my day down, it's I, I have this kind of almost spiritual duty to express my gratitude for the gift of sobriety. Um, and then the thing that you see in 12-step programs is that is people helping people. And so there is a, a there is a, an, a, a, which you identified early on in this conversation, that there is a basic... Um, capacity that each of us have to make a positive difference in each other's lives. I mean, this is so, so you're be, you're given the gift of sobriety and then you're given the awareness that 
you can make a positive difference just by being kind and compassionate and putting like you, you we're gonna have to do something all day you know you get sober and you realize well i have like i now have about 18 hours a day to do something and you're being given the gift of wisdom and insight in the sense that you're like well i'm gonna fill my day with service to others i'm gonna be a good friend and my friendship is gonna be sincere i'm gonna be a sincere partner i'm gonna be a sincere parent i'm gonna be a sincere professional and whatever. And then you see, like I had, you know, I mean, it was wonderful. I had friends who were sober cops and sober firemen and sober nurses and sober teachers and sober, you know, doctors and businessmen. And they were all meeting their life with this sincerity, you know, that wasn't predicated on any sort of like greed or hatred, but on gratitude. And so that made a huge impression. And it's basically, you know, that was my intention. And the role of that is it's perfect because it creates this kind of benchmark of like, well, this is your intention. How's that working in your relationship to your son right now? You know, who's homesick or your dog or, you know, um, your colleague at work. Like, are you bringing that awareness and that intention into how you're showing up for these relationships? And from that, you, you start to have, well, how do I get better at relationships? Well, you get to your yoga mat and you get to your meditation cushion. Those will be things that will help, you know? Um, and then you can spend time with people who are more knowledgeable and who have a, who have a level of kind of wisdom and attainment that can support you as you make your choices. And so there's steps you can take to kind of, once you kind of have that, in, once you have an intention, then you have um, the, um, the means to determine the next right thing to do. You know, how do I that, now how do I embody that intention? So that I think that's where it came from. I, yoga and meditation have been kind of more, have, it wasn't like I found my intention there. They were um, uh, places I could go to embody my intention, to learn how to embody my intention. Now, I just do have to ask you one question about this. When you, you know, when you talked about living from gratitude and being a good friend and a good father and a good husband. That was all very moving to me. When before that you were saying that your sobriety was a gift and that was why you felt this life of gratitude, I thought to myself, well, was it a gift or was it Rolf's discipline and Rolf's good heart that said, I care about life and my ability to give? And I mean, it's a series of choices that you've made. Yes. Well, yeah, you have to kind of be in the bottom, an, an addict's bottom, you know. Um, yeah, once I was sober, you know, there was some sort of essence to me. You know, I think I, there, yeah. was a, there was a Rolf in there that responded with great enthusiasm to the notion of going to meetings and being of service, right? And so let's give that, you know, self some credit. Um, but, um, you know, and this this is one of those things, too, that it's really about a person's experience, you know, and what's kind of true in their experience. In my experience, I was in a, I was in a state which is kind of impossible to describe other than kind of suicidal combined with, you know, kind of a suicidal level of despair and depression and in a state that I could not, I could not possibly get out of on my own. Um, and I went to a meeting and they gave me a book and I read the book and it said, if you have that problem, try prayer. 
I tried prayer on May 21st, 1990, and the desire to, dr- to drink was lifted in a decisive way in the blink of an eye. Like I got on my knees in a state of like suicidal despair, and I got up knowing I wasn't like I'd, something had happened. And, and, and I've had this kind of galvanized, motivated, more than enough um, desire to stay sober ever since. Like I was like, I'm good. Like I am, I don't have the, you know, I remember being like two or three months sober and being like, I want to drink alcohol. Like I'd want to drink Drano. And that happened not because of my own efforts, but because of the power of prayer. I, I mean, I guess my efforts was I, I, I read the book and I followed the instructions and I prayed, but I had no idea what I was mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, conversations like this are difficult for me because, you know, there's countless people who have been ill and they prayed and it didn't work out for them, or they have loved ones who, you know, had tremendous virtue and they died of their addiction. My sister died of her addiction. My best friend died of his addiction. And, um, and so, you know, this idea that you pray and everything's okay can seem controversial, but I'm simply being trying, my effort, my desire here is just to be honest, that, that the kind of the, the first moment for me on my spiritual path was that I was in a kind of fatal mental spiral I get down, I pray, and I get up, and I know it's going to be okay. And I can kind of go about my business at this point. I never, you know, in the 27 years I've been sober, I haven't had the desire to drink. I just had a desire to, to live with skill. And when I started, that was, a, that was like a tall order. I had no training in it. And so for me, this conversation is really about, like, what communities have helped you live skillfully over the years? And it started with 12-step. You know, I learned how to kind of, kind of get dressed and go to work and have a life of kind of ethical principles. And then in, on, in yoga, I learned how to um, kind of do all the, all the caring that didn't, I mean, I spent my first two years in an orphanage and I had what's called an in, uh, institutionalized infant syndrome. And so I'd had very little kind of holding or soothing in my life, you know, and yoga taught me how to hold, how to like, hold myself in a place of kind of ease and contentment in the present moment. And that was like a large learning. And then meditation has been a place where I, you know, I, I basically was able to prevent, you know, befriend my physical, energetic and emotional bodies in yoga. And I've been able to befriend my mental body in meditation. I've been able to make a, like you're, you're in meditation, you're learning to make a, a friend of the mind. You're not defeating it. You're not telling it to shut up. Like you're befriending it. You're like, look, we're we're in this for the long haul. <laughs> so like let's let's work together here, you know. Let's not blame you for being, you know, the conditioned human mind. Let's just work with you. So Rolf, there's one note I want to end on, which is your new program offers a set of teachings and practices for living from the heart. And one of the comments you make, one of the teachings in that program, is that our minds scream and our hearts whisper. And when I heard that, I thought, now that is a very true statement. And I'd love for you to leave our listeners with some ideas on how they can hear their hearts whisper. Uh, yeah, that's beautiful. It always rests. It always touches people. 
Um, yeah, it's not my quote. I got it from somewhere. I'm not, you know, it's probably out. They'll probably know who the author is at some point. Um, I think that all spiritual practice comes down to that basic um, um, statement that there is this whisper of the heart which will guide us truly, you know. Um, now, the screaming mind, I think, has to be respected because it's reacting to the to the kind of chaotic nature of life and to the many difficulties and disappointments that we've experienced in the past. And it just doesn't, its job is to try to keep us safe. Um, And so it's like reacting in that fashion. It's just there to kind of keep us safe, make sure that we tie our shoes and get to work on time. And then the heart has this connection to something, um, a deep to the deeper meaning of our life, the deeper meaning of this existence, the deeper learning path that we're on. Um, and we kind of want to have a foot in both camps. You know, you want to have a foot in that part of you that knows that you need to get up at 6.30 and get out the door by 7.15. That that's important too. And But that's not going to guide you into kind of, you know, into, into skillful living. That's just going to get you to the place where you need to be on time. And then there's this other part of us, which is, um, which can, uh, um, that when we're listening to, we reach the capacity, we reach the potential we were born to reach. And I would say, I'll leave you with basically three things that have made a difference. And they're, you know, straight out of kind of Buddhism 101. There's, there's, there's having teachers that have done this longer, who we can, you know, look at and be like, wow, um, I, I've watched this guy in action and he's, he's someone I can learn from. He's someone who's living the way I want to live. And so when I think about a teacher, I'm, I'm thinking about someone who's basically living the way you want to live. And that means how they're not just like their house and their, and their job, but like how they're being with the people in their lives, you know? And then, so having a teacher, um, having teachings that, um, remind us of the heart, you know, I, the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu is like one of my favorite little, it's a small book, but it just reminds me of the heart day after day. And, you know, having teachings that remind us of the heart. And then finally, having a community um, where where listening to the heart's whisper is kind of the priority. It's not one of the priorities. It is the priority. And I think that, you know, we need um, we need each other. We need um, they say a, a teacher reminds the student until she remembers. I think one of the biggest reminders is this spiritual friendship and spiritual community. We step into these communities, into these friendships, and we remember. You know, we remember the whisper of the heart. Very beautiful. Thank you so much. I've been talking with Rolf Gates. He's the author of the book Meditations on Intention and Being and Meditations from the Mat. And with Sounds True, he's created a new audio program on practices for living from the heart. It's called Meditations on the Mat. Rolf, thank you so much for just being so straightforward and helpful in this conversation. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome, Tammy. It's so great to be here. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.